So, welcome to episode 200. Um, I first wanted to start off just by saying uh, thank you to everybody uh, who has been on the podcast before and shared your work. Um, because you know, I, I get compliments from different faculty members or um, some grad students who have really liked the podcast. And and to be honest, like this podcast wouldn't exist if you didn't come on to come share your work. Um, and I've actually ran the analytics on numbers of listeners. And anytime I talk about my own research, it's the lowest listened to episode by far. So it's, I don't know what that says about me, but it does say a lot about you that you are, you are essentially carrying this podcast and, and sharing this work. I mean, stuff that Ben did over the pedagogy seminar, um, you know, like well over 10,000 downloads on that single, uh, single seminar. Uh, so like it's it's really successful, and I'm really open to different ideas from you all. Um, there's some innovative things that you, um, people have suggested, and we're we're trying some new things. But um, today we're going to hopefully have uh, like a casual conversation about the state of health and physical education and HPE research. Um, and so for the people on the call, feel free to kind of chime in anytime. Um, if you want, you can also take that conversation into the chat and then pull from there. Obviously, this is an audio podcast, so the chat doesn't really make for a great podcast. But I know that some people like having that conversation on the side and then we can we can bring it in. Um, and if you just want to listen in, you are more than welcome to just uh, kind of listen in. Um, I put into the chat again the questions that we're going to go off of and um, hopefully um, maybe you prepped, maybe you didn't. It doesn't matter either way, but um, just um, we're going to go through those and see how it goes. If you want to drop out at some point, you're more than welcome to just wave and, and uh, say goodbye. But let me just... Uh, Oh, and if you're talking for the first time, um, unless I like call you specifically by name, maybe uh, introduce yourself and where you're from, so people that are listening that aren't seeing your your face uh, knows who's talking. So the first question that I came up with uh, was the most influential or slash best article you've read and why other people should read it. So I promise to start this off myself and. Um, my choice here, which again is one out of many, uh, was Kim Oliver's um, "Girly Girls Plant Can uh, Girly Girls Can Play Games." Las Niñas Pueden Tambien, um, and I, I see Mara smiling because this is an article that we read in grad school together, and it was one of these articles that really like exposed me to prolonged engagement with one group. It kind of gave me this courage to do studies with less than 100 people. Like the end doesn't really necessarily matter that much. Um, she worked with this uh, specific group. It was a small group and I was so confused because before that I probably mostly read quantitative papers that had to have a specific high number of participants. And, um, you know, it also exposed me to a lot of, um, you know, how young girls don't necessarily, they're marginalized in physical education. And, you know, I've, I've done similar research projects to that. And then it kind of led me to lead, uh, read work by Carla Liguetti and other students, Oscars on here um, that have kind of carried on that similar work. So um, I think she's done a ton of really great work in that area. And I think that that's why I would say if somebody were to read an article, it's a good article to start with. 
So, um, others, um, I'll just just jump right in. Maybe I, I called out Mara, so maybe Mara can can share. Sure. Well, you you kind of stole my line, but I'll, I had a backup one, so that's okay. That was definitely one that made a huge impression on me, but one that I came back to over and over again during my dissertation research, and I still come back to is by Dr. Ann Flintoff, and it's called Playing the Race Card, Black and Minority Ethnic Students' Experiences of Physical Education, Teacher Education. Because when we look at issues of racism in PE in the K through 12 schools that are, you know, uh, sort of held by teachers, we can see the role that teacher education plays in maintaining systems of whiteness and racism. And so I think that understanding the cycle of teachers, you know, how they see themselves with regards to race, this article did a really good job of that. Awesome. Um, others, Jamie. I can jump in. This is kind of along the same line, so I was sort of waiting for someone else to jump in with something different, but um, an article that I have my grad students read, and then something that's informed a lot of the work that I do um, is actually by Annette Stride in the UK, Let Us Tell You South Asian Muslim Girls Tell Tales About Physical Education. And I feel like it is a really um, important article for us from the standpoint of, you know, listening to diverse voices and things like that. But um, the fact that in this article, it actually sort of dispels some of the beliefs that we hold, I think, about certain groups of students. And when we, when Annette actually asked them, um, their perceptions and things were a lot different, I think, than maybe she even, um, and I, you know, not to, to, you know, claim what she believes, but, you know, I think that it was, the findings were sort of surprising. And so um, that one was really great. And I, I can drop the DOI into the chat too. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Jamie. Let's go, Kevin, and then uh, David. So, Illinois to Wales. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, this is a, this is an article that I that I go back to all the time. It's one that I have my undergraduate students read. Actually, um, it's by uh, Kurtner Smith, Hasty, and Kinchin, uh, and it's, it's published in uh, Sporthead and Society, and it's called "The Influence of Occupational Socialization: uh, Beginning Teachers' Interpretation and Delivery of Sport Education." Um, and, and what I really like about this article, and of course, you know, this is my bias coming through, of course, I would choose the socialization article. Um, but what I really like about this article is I find that it's really accessible and it really helps kind of start conversations with undergraduate students about, um, you know, how they understand uh, teaching practices, in this case, sport education specifically, but you can kind of draw the extension to other teaching practices and how um, the way that they've been socialized both previously and during their current education uh, influences that. Um, and then things that they can think about preparing for once they move out into schools in terms of facilitators or barriers to effective teaching. Awesome, thanks Kevin. David? So you, you dropped your uh, citation in already, so ahead of the game. Yeah, I thought it'd be useful to share. Um, so this one I chose is John Evans, uh, Brian Davies, and Emma Rich's excellent article called The Body Made Flesh, Embodied Learning and the Corporeal Device. It was published in the British Journal of Sociology of Education. And for me, it's a really, it's a really interesting read on a number of, level, number of levels. It was one of those articles that 
I think, push the boundaries of our thinking around um, sociology of education and the role sociology of education can play in physical education. I think some of the questions they're asking around uh, embodied learning and some of the um, positive but most not so positive consequences of physical education are really highlighted in it. Um, I think it's a really brave article and it's one that um, I, I share with my students because of the way that they articulate complex theory but make it accessible. And I, I think that's a, that's a rare talent um, in some of the articles that I read. So it's a fantastic article. Um, uh, and I think it's a really good one because it, yeah, it gets me thinking differently about topics that we've thought long and hard about within physical education and not necessarily um, found solutions to. So yeah, it's, it's a good one for me. Awesome, thanks. Thanks, David. Kirsten? Good attention, Patrice. Um, so I, lots of us have talked about what we read at grade school. Um, we don't call it grade school here, but whatever. Um, one for me was uh, uh, George Sage's um, paper from 1993, so it harks back a whole lot longer, Sport and Physical Education and the New World Order, Dear We Be Agents of Social Change. Um, and really, I guess as a grade student, it really spoke to me about understanding physical education as part of a broader social system and a socio-cultural kind of understanding of what we do and what we might do differently and moving beyond a sport agenda only um, and what that means. And I think it um, probably informed how health and physical education curriculum in New Zealand has been shaped as a result. Um, so yeah, it was way early on and I, I'm not sure um, you still see some of the stuff that he talked about and they're playing out and how uh, physical education is presented internationally. So yeah, I think it's a, just a nice introduction into some of the discourses that shape our practices. Yeah. And I wonder what, what makes a good article for you all. Like we, we talked about all these different topics and I think David brought up a good point of like, he said it, it was just like a good article because it made you think differently. And I think that for me, that's what Kim Oliver's article was to me. It made me think differently about what I thought I understood and it totally like changed my understanding. And I think that to me, and, and you all can kind of agree or disagree or give a different point, but to me, like what makes a really good article is that it, it changes my thinking. It changes what I thought before and it has to be that like kind of drastic. And I think that that's why for me, when this, this article I, that made such an impact was when I was in grad school. It's because I just thought I knew things and I d definitely did not and it, it changed that way. So would you, would you agree with that or um, do other people have uh, another article that they would want to share? Um, go ahead, Oscar. Sure. Well, the article that I want to share with you all is uh, it's from uh, Bill Landy. Um, the uh, towards a queer inclusive physical education. When the first time I read it, coming from a male-dominated culture where everything has to be male has to be, I mean, supposed to behave in certain ways. When I read it, it was like, I mean, just blew my mind. It, it changed my perspective on how can be, or how should be an inclusive physical education, and how as we as teachers we need to include everyone, despite whether you are agreed or disagree with some some behaviors and you have to be 
in a different, you have to put yourself in a different position to understand all the struggles your students might have been through those uh, type of uh, uh, challenges. And, um, and it was really hard for me to read it because, uh, as I said, coming from a, my culture, where talking about these topics are not as open as in other countries, it just changed and, and, and created, I mean, a certain inner struggle within my personal identity, my teaching identity, and how a researcher can apply all these new knowledge into my courses as well. So um, it was one of the, those articles that uh, it changes your perspective on how things should work. Thanks, Oscar. And Oscar came on, uh, he's at the Autonomous University in Chihuahua. Yes? Correct. All right. Uh, so he's, he's in Mexico, and he came on and did a similar podcast that I did with um, Kirsten about New Zealand, Oscar did about, uh, about Mexico. Um, so there's, there's interesting kind of correlations there. And um, I like that you brought up Dylan's article and placed it in reading it coming from a very uh, different culture. Um, uh, Joanne, I'm not sure. I know you're in transit, but uh, did you want to speak about uh, speak about that at all? Yeah, sure can. Um, so I've highlighted um, Emma Enright and um, Mario Sullivan's paper from 2011, which is uh, the first part of the title is "Can I Do It in My Pajamas?" Um, I'm in my car, so I don't have the full uh, reference. But as you were all talking, I was thinking about uh, papers that resonate with me, but also ones that I keep coming back to, and ones that I share with my students. Um, and for me, the Can I Do It in My Pajamas paper um, is something that I often share with my undergraduate students who are, are not training teachers, but they are going to be probably going to go into teacher training, teacher education in the future as a, as a real example of how we can do critical pedagogy, we can do a negotiated curriculum in the classroom. Like, what does it actually look like in a HPE situation? Um, so we're taking these concepts of um, being critical or, or wanting to challenge existing practices and they go, well, what do we do instead? And this is a really good example of how you can actually implement things day to day as well as like a broader, like if you've got a unit of work, how you can implement things longer term as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And I, uh, that's a great article as well. Um, great one to to read especially if you're looking at student voice and um getting you know listening to the people you're actually teaching about what you're teaching um so i'll keep that question open so um for anybody that wants to come back or you're kind of thinking about an article you want to bring up uh feel free to either just drop it in the chat and say that you don't want to talk or um or just raise your hand um but I'll move on to the second question, which is about what are we not paying attention to now that we'll be kicking ourselves in 10 to 20 years uh, for missing? Um, and I put this question up there because I've, I've been thinking about these futures papers and obviously like what we're thinking about now. So like if I bring a topic up, somebody's written a paper up about this, someone's commented on this in some way. So I don't think any of these are gonna be necessarily original ideas, but what I've seen at least tend to happen is that we go back and say, oh, this person predicted this in 1993 or 2016, and now this is happening, but we didn't really take action. So with that in mind, um, I think one of the things that in the US that needs to be fixed in some way is high school physical education. 
um, the secondary level, so 9, 10, 11, 12, I, I feel like uh, the two, two places, especially the first place I was at, we, we had a hard time finding really good high school placements. So when, they, when our students did their secondary observations, they often did it at the middle school level, so grades 6, 7, 8, instead of going to the high schools. Um, so, you know, this week in, our, um, in my master's class at Mason, I, I have the students think about how they can restructure something in PE and give their, they do like a little short video. So my video is about uh, restructuring high school physical education to be, uh, to have three different parts. So part one is PE as it is, you're not changing anything. The people who want to come in, they're coming into ninth and 10th grade PE doing the stuff that normal PE teachers do. Um, number two is changing that, or so you have three options. So the second option is doing it hybrid. So using the unused gym space in the morning and uh, the outdoor space when available or outdoor education stuff when available or the gym space after school, you use that space for PE. You open it up during lunch. You have a hybrid, kind of like a flipped classroom. So students can do their physical activity portion wherever they want or however they want, but the uh, curriculum is a flipped classroom. And then the third idea or the third option is to do fully online PE. And this is for the students who absolutely hate it. They don't want to be there. They're maybe disruptive in class or they just like refuse to participate when they're going in. So again, it's like, it's something that I've kind of thought about of how to do it. It would need a lot of community support, community engagement to open up those spaces. But I think that there's a lot of public spaces that are free. And if you take, let's say you have physical education in third period, middle of the day, you don't want to sweat, you could do your homework during that time. And then, or you could leave, move physical education to the last period of the class and go into a community space to be physically active during that time instead of staying in class, getting sweaty, and then going right into another class without, in the US, without showering. So. Um, that's kind of my restructure idea. I don't know if that's the best idea, but I went first. So save, save me a little grace. Jamie. Um, I think that the big thing that we need to be paying attention to that we don't do as good of a job as we should be in higher ed is policy um, and policy research um, and policy being policy actors. I feel like we talk about it a lot and we say that we should do it and be interested in it, but that there's not a lot of action around policy and things like even what you're talking about with the restructuring, all of that connects back to policy at some level. Um, and so I think that we, you know, we're at this place where I really feel like we sort of know what works and what doesn't, not always, um, but that the next step is for us as, as higher education professionals to start to engage more in the policy realm, whether it's through policy action and legislation and being involved in that in our various levels or um, through policy related research. Yeah, and, and I, I would agree. I think that if you look at the US, the policy research is not at the same level as it is in Australia or, or even the UK. So I think that that's something in US specific for sure that 
we we haven't really um, pushed a lot. And Hans came on to the podcast and did part uh, a policy uh, discussion, and he talked about how at the assistant professor level, it's just not uh, prioritized. Policy work takes time. You can't pull off a really quick survey and then end up getting published in order to go up for tenure. So the research lines don't start early enough. And then people who are getting into policy are are perhaps getting in late. And also some of the best policy that works is going to working with specific Congress people or members of parliament. And that doesn't necessarily lead to a publication. It might lead to a lot of change, but it doesn't lead to the stuff that people in the universities are getting uh, promoted for. Um, others about something that we should uh, be paying attention to. Colin, go ahead. Hi, Rich. Thanks for having me, first of all. Um, yeah, I didn't really want to come and add mine, but I wanted to give you a bit of support to yours, really, um, especially on, on the back of what you said about your podcast. Um, your research might not be as well listened to. So I wanted to come in and say you've got a good idea there. Um, it reminded me of some of the ecological work that's happening, um, possibly in sport more than PE, um, people like Keith Davids or Chris Button or James Rudd, where they're really trying to uh, connect PE to the wider environment and uh, taking it out of the classroom, taking it out of formalized sports halls and into the community. Um, and then just to the comment after about sport policy, I think actually the connection there between the two of those areas, that idea of, well, it's a great idea to take PA out into the community to prepare people for the natural environment that they'll inhabit for the rest of their lives. But what are the policy implications of trying to do that and what policies would be needed to be in place to enable the teachers to do that? So just when the two ideas came up there, I see a connection between the two, because otherwise you're left with the, the lone wolf PE teacher trying to affect the pedagogy on their own, an ecological pedagogy that's broader than just the school, but without a policy framework to support that and encourage that, it's pretty tough act. So yeah. I just thought those two were really nice connections there, and I wanted to come in and back you up and say, yeah, I think you're onto something good. So I'll stop at that point and hand over to somebody else. Thanks for that. Really appreciate the backup. I need it. Uh, Clancy. Uh, greetings, everyone. Um, long time no see, Risto. Um, uh, but first and foremost, congratulations, my friend, on your 200th episode. This is a fantastic accomplishment. And Colin said it well. Uh, it speaks to your uh, passion and your commitment to the profession. Well done, my friend. And and you know, the previous question and, and, and then going into or segueing into this question, I think relates, I, I kind of held back at first, but I, I, I wanted to jump in and, and I think I'm going to jump in now and, and basically say that when we think about articles or, or research or literature that uh, is a must read, uh, many of the people in the room today would certainly apply. You know, congratulations and kudos to all my colleagues who've done some outstanding work. Uh, but one thing that I wanted to, or one author that I wanted to bring up that I think many would agree uh, that I would encourage anyone to read, whether it's um, an, a teacher candidate in their beginning years of the profession or even an experienced veteran, would be anything by David Kirk. 
um, and um, in particular is Phys Ed Futures uh, book, and uh, and even though not an article or his recent precarity title, again a book, but not an article. And maybe if uh, we want the, uh, the you know the more uh, the smaller version of the precarity title, we would uh, look at um, you know chapter eight of the critical pedagogy uh, book by. Um, um, Pringle and his colleagues, uh, Critical Research in Sport, uh, that's a, a really good chapter that kind of sums up his precarity title as well. And why I bring this up is, you know, he he was pretty uh, spot on with some of his predictions, and in, in particular, 2020 with his precarity title and, uh, you know, some of the challenges that we're seeing, in, not only in physical education, but in uh, the K-12 through sphere, uh, the social-emotional um, uh, challenges, the, 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 the precarity as he brings it up, and uh, the, many, uh, the many unstable challenges that our local school community faces. And I think, uh, speaking to what Risto mentions about restructuring, I think the restructuring has to consider many of those um, challenges that uh, Dr. Kirk foreshadowed. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, some of these future papers uh, they they got uh, a speed up during the pandemic of where we're going, what we're doing. It just kind of pushed some of those things um, uh, much quicker. Uh, Mara, any, any uh, comments on things that we uh, are missing now that we should maybe be paying more attention to? Well, something that I think this isn't particularly new. Like I think it's certainly been addressed over probably years and years of this work is the clearly um, notable disconnect between research and practice that you just highlighted when you were saying like how hard it is to find good high schools to place students at. And so it's like we, if we look at the list of articles that we all just, you know, threw out as interesting or intriguing to us, like we see these, we know that some of these pedagogies work to engage students to demonstrate high-level, quality, meaningful PE. We don't see them in the school. We don't see them being done very much. And so that question of why and, and what's going on in PE teacher education that precludes new, emerging, evolving ways of teaching, like why are we still like stuck in this sort of sport-centered curriculum? that has been going on. I mean, I've been in the field 10 years for my first year of my doctoral program. We were talking about it then. It's been written about 10 years, 20 years, 30 years before that. And we're still trying to figure it out. So yeah. I feel like to me, that is such a big one. Yeah, and, and great point, Mara. Um, I was on uh, Clancy's New York State APERD podcast with Steve Silverman last night. And uh, he said, Clancy asked a question of why would you suggest for somebody to read research, like a teacher? And Steve said, why would you start from scratch? Like you have so much information already out there. Why would you start from the beginning? Because people have researched this. If you read the research, understand the research, implement the research, it will save you so much headache and time and effort. So I thought that was, that was really well said. And I think that that problem of transitioning the research into practice has been an issue. And Mara, that's a, that's a really good point to bring up. Uh, David, Oscar, and then Ben. So let's start with David. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a point that resonates with what others have been saying on the call, but one of the things on a local level to, to Welsh health and physical education is one of the things I hope we don't miss um, is the opportunity for meaningful and sustainable change um, and the actual idea of enacting some ambitious uh, policies around health and health and well-being and I just wonder if we look back in 10 to 20 years' time, whether we we kind of look back at it and we, we've missed the opportunity for really supporting educators to make change um, at a local level in the, in the micro level of the classroom. Uh, and it comes to Mara's point in the sense that we've got some real ambition, we've got some real ambitious policies in Wales, uh, I think, around health and health and well-being. Um, uh, and my, my observation is how are we supporting educators to make that next transition. And one of the things is looking at ourselves in, the, in initial teacher education, physical education, teacher education, about what changes we are making. And I, I can't help but feel, you know, if we look back in 10 years' time, oh, you know, did, were we brave enough? Did we have those awkward conversations? Were we, did we make ourselves uncomfortable enough to make those changes? Uh, and it's, it's one that kind of plays on me a little bit, yeah. I'll be honest. Uh, it's a really good question to be asking ourselves, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Oscar? Well, I think one of the things that we can start looking at, especially now that um, technology has brought us together in, in so many levels, probably doing research in a more um, worldwide perspective, like especially with non-speaking English countries, uh, because one of the things that I've seen is that physical education is struggling so many levels, and it seems that PE has been struggling in similar ways in different countries. So if we kind of like establish like a network that uh, we can understand how physical education is struggling in worldwide in, in so many in so many ways, probably we can tackle I mean uh, a problem that um, uh, or maybe go into a deeper understanding of how can we do as researchers as a teacher and, and provide a different perspective for our students as well. Because um, if we only do certain ways, we're gonna keep doing the same, I mean, we're gonna gain the same results as Dr. Kirk said. So probably that's something we can we can do as well, especially using technology as we're doing it now, that uh, we're in a different country, different time locations, and we're here. So probably we can take advantage of that and, 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 and I mean, increase that perspective. Yeah, I think, Oscar, you're spot on. And I think ICEP is starting to do a better job with this of connecting those um, different different countries and different researchers. And I know Ben, uh, when he was part of that board, has pushed for the developing country scholar to be able to get funding to go there. I think, actually, the, the push, which I don't like from a personal perspective of these hybrid conferences and these the access that, you know, I. If, uh, if I'm going to a conference, I'm going to do a roundtable, I'm going to do it online instead of being in person with those people. It's, it's not the best for the in-person experience, but the ability for that to be accessible to so many people around the world is great. And I think that, you know, in the U.S. specifically, like we are, uh, we're very guilty of looking at research in only English, right? We look at it and it's like, this is the research that we know, whereas there's a lot of Spanish scholars that publish only in Spanish that do really good work. There's a lot of people in uh, in Brazil that do good work that just doesn't get translated over. And so I think that 
you know, when we do reviews or research, it should always have that caveat of saying, with this said, this is only English language articles. And I, I think that call, Oscar, is, is definitely something that we should be paying attention to. Um, ben, your hand went down, but are you good? No, no, no I, I would like to make yep. comment. Can you hear me okay, mate? Yep. Cheers. Uh, look, I'd just like to reiterate what was just said. Um, you know, uh, you know, we funded nine um, faculty from developing countries that otherwise wouldn't have attended ISEP. Uh, you know, and so that just make. And if you go to these sessions, you just make sure aware of the good work they're doing in all these different countries in Africa or in Indonesia. Uh, Risto, how many people do you think live in Indonesia? I'm just. You know, There's asking a, a uh, quick. There's uh, about 250 million. That was going to be my first guest. 250 million. <laughs> yeah, mate. All right. Anyway, look. Uh, first of all, Risto, um, you should be. Re you know, I just want to make a, a shout out to you because you should be very proud of what you have accomplished with this podcast and, you know, with this 200th episode, over 130 thousand downloads. Uh, you've done a bloody good job, mate. All right, it's in Kiwi for you. Um, I know our very personally, our creative pedagogy seminar has now been downloaded over 10,000 times, as you told folks. And, you know, many folks around the world who would otherwise not have access to this stuff, this critical, reflexive work that we're trying to do in pedagogy or curriculum or in any area of interest, uh, otherwise would not be available. So, you know, you, you've made an excellent contribution to the field. So, I'd like to give you a, you know, a, a shout out. And uh, before I start making a quick comment to connect with some folks. So, you know, I, I really like Jamie bringing up the stuff on policy and Jamie is in North Carolina. So we're going to uh, hook up. Uh, and Mara, thanks for uh, adding to, to that and also talking about this theory practice gap. So Risto, I hope you don't mind that I'm going to just jump into which was my uh, future research question, which is how do we bridge this theory practice gap? So I, th I think it's connected to a bunch of things people were talking about. So I hope you don't mind me fast forwarding a little bit with my comment. So in the schools, there are so many health and physical education uh, people who are doing amazing work. And it's very tough work, it's very demanding, especially with COVID. And we should be working with these schools and with these communities to support and facilitate this high quality creative and critical work that they're doing. So we have this age old di dilemma that, you know, we in the ivory tower uh, or disconnected tower as uh, Mara might call it, uh, we have, you know, we have this knowledge and understanding that we should potentially facilitate this stuff, this work in the school. but. You know, a lot of emerging scholars are discouraged from going into schools. There aren't incentives. And so that is that the word. So they aren't going to do research in schools with uh, kids or in the communities. And so this is also connected to our outdated TMP process, our tenure and promotion. It rewards publications and grant writing and maybe a little bit of teaching on the side. Uh, so they need to be rewritten. So we need to work towards that. And I'm committed to doing that at UNC Greensboro. And I'll be talking to my folks about it when, as we're doing our strategic planning. But so th that is connected to policy. But, you know, we just have this age old uh, 
problem where we struggle to work in the schools and then we have this massive theory practice gap. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Uh, thoughts and comments about uh, that are extending our work. I guess it, to me, I, I'm, I'm trying to connect you know, the, the, the lack of policy work and our own institutions, which then would help enable emerging scholars to work in schools. If we worked more in schools, which I really do think that we need to do in schools and in the community, then we would, that would certainly help facilitate uh, reducing this theory practice gap. Yep. I think I've said enough, cheers. Thanks, Ben. And um, feel free to jump in and chime in. Let's go in order though with uh, Kathy next and then uh, back to Kirsten. And Kathy, I will say thank you because one of your students saw me at the conference um, this last weekend. We had the Vapor Conference. And she came up, she waited very politely and then walked up to me and said, hi, are you so-and-so? And and my students are like, other people know you? So you made me look like, or she made me look like a rock star in front of my uh, five uh, undergraduate students. So I, I really appreciate that. Hey, happy to help. I wanted to congratulate you on the 200th episode and thank you for this amazing podcast because I, I utilize it in my research methods class for feet and um, it's just an awesome resource um, for both in-service and pre-service and uh, research, I mean, for everyone. Um, and when I, Mara mentioned something that, um, and Ben alluded to it as well, that made me think about what I think we're not paying attention to. And I feel like so many of our programs struggle to find appropriate placements for our student teachers. And, and so that lends me to think from the research and practice connection of like, how is marginalization or, um, I'm sorry, socialization, how is teacher socialization happening at the earliest level with our pre-service teachers? Like when we send pre-service teachers into settings to do an eight week or 12 week immersive, high impact teaching experience, if we're sending them into a setting that is less than positive, um, mainly because of it, it's not developmentally appropriate best practice, then are we starting that socialization before they even get into the field? And how do we walk that line of conducting research to figure this out and to amplify the voices of those student teachers, to amplify the voices of those cooperating teachers? How do we walk that fine line without damaging relationships with the school systems and the schools? Because even if the practice isn't excellent, it's still a placement that you might want to keep, right? And so how can we, how can we start to ask whether or not that the early part of our bigger problem because we continue to see that we're having that same wheel continue to spin in terms of programs that are not developmentally appropriate. And so, yeah. uh, no, I, and, are, and I think that are that's we starting a, that process early? Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good, good point. I mean, I, I changed my ma major in undergrad away from physical education to health science because of my field placement that I went to in a, in a not, not in, not great high school. Like I went in and I observed it and I was like, I do not want to do that for a career. Like there's no motivation for the students. That's not what I want to push through for the next like X amount of years in my career. And I changed to health science to be a health educator in the classroom. Now, obviously that's come full circle and I kind of see it in a different light, but I would have been that statistic in there that Kathy, you talked about of being placed in a place that wasn't wasn't great. Um, Kirsten. 
Um, just really appreciate everyone's comments, and I, I think one of the biggest challenges is this, this is going to sound problematic, but you know we are so entrenched and passionate about health and PE, and at the same time we still operate where health and physical education is not valued in most settings. And so how do we partner with other educators and the settings we work in to get value? So, you know, I think we operate in silos way too often and there's the ivory tower silo and the school silo and there's the theory and the practice silo and there's the research and the practitioner silo and, and then we separate ourselves from other subject disciplines that might have real value and I do worry, and maybe because I really focus on primary school settings, that it doesn't actually matter what I do in initial teacher ed. They go into a primary school where numeracy and literacy is far more valued than anything I will ever do. Um, so, and the systems in those schools are going to privilege numeracy and literacy. So if I'm not partnering with those people, then it's a waste of time. Nothing I do in my courses will really shape change. So how do we work more smartly with our partners in education to bring about change as opposed to just continuing to being the HPE drum in isolation of the whole orchestra that is the system. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I think that's so, great. Yeah. I, I, and I see this, you know, the, the silos, the, you know, we're not choosing to partner with certain, certain organizations. And I think if you look at, you know, just how we're perceived, like, if you look at STEM education in the in the U.S., there's a lot of like get girls in STEM. Like there's all these like taglines and hashtags and like a girl hashtag that you know I think is Dove or and or Nike or whatever. Like they brand that. It has nothing to do with physical education. It has everything to do with sports and physical activity. But physical education and health haven't figured out how to partner with that to get that kind of elevated stature whereas other subjects whether it's literacy how you know different organizations are pushing literacy or numeracy or science education haven't really been able to kind of bridge that gap and i don't think PE has um, and i'm not sure if if i misinterpreted where you're going there or not but um Sorry, I realised my accent, but no, I, you didn't misinterpret. I think um, health and physical education, some of our objectives and goals can be delivered in conjunction with other learning areas. Yet we keep it as the siloed separate time as opposed to a much more integrated thematic curriculum that extends across the learning areas. Mm -hmm. But we privilege it into this little patch of time. So we get our 50 minutes every, you know, um, twice a week, as opposed to going, actually, where is the connection between the learning? And how do we make use of those times to achieve collective agendas? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that even in New Zealand, the things that you're doing so much better than in the US is that community engagement of like, at, at least it's written into that uh, curriculum. <laughs> and I don't know how it works in, in practice, but you know, you do have that community aspect and it is trying to at least bridge that gap, whereas it's not written in necessarily, I mean, into some shape standards, there's like, I think one or two words like community in the entire K to 12 connection. So, um, so let me, uh, and I think this might be a little bit similar um, of 
asking what future research questions should we be considering in the field? And you know, I'll, I'll add two, um, not specific research questions, but areas. I think, um, I think Mara brought this up, or somebody brought this up about recruitment and retention. Um, maybe not Mara, but anyway, I think that is one of the bigger things that we should be focusing on in the US is recruitment and retention, because if we don't solve that problem, then we don't have a field to actually work in and do research in. And, you know, in the U.S., especially, you know, compounded with this pandemic, teachers are done. Te you know, the teachers we talk to, they're just like five minutes away from quitting. Like, push me over the edge and I, I promise I'll leave. You know, like they're, the last two years have been really, really, really tough. And, you know, a lot of the greater like teacher education literature in general is showing that you know, in the U.S., the tide has turned. There are more people, more parents who wish their kids not to go in to education as a career path. And, you know, I think there are very few programs in the U.S. that are thriving, that are increasing numbers. I think most of my colleagues that I've talked to, there's a couple people, you know, a couple schools that participate in the Peak Collaborative that we run um, that talk about that they've increased. And honestly, like a lot of those places other places will do the same exact thing marketing and and all of that but not they're not seeing that that push and the second one that i would love to see kind of expanded on internationally and outside of australia is this idea of informal sport uh justin o'connor has done a lot of really interesting stuff uh he was on like four years ago it's like one of my first podcasts that i did uh, and it just like, like lit up my imagination of what it could be and these informal spaces and how he talks about how you can participate in these activities like cycling alone or with two friends. You can participate in running, training for a marathon alone or with friends. You can do rock climbing alone or with friends. And it's like they're on these schedules that are not so rigid. And I think you know, if we continue to push forward with football, basketball, softball, you know, lacrosse, these play, these games that we need X amount of people, it puts it into a such a rigid schedule that we are Tuesdays and Thursdays are practices and then we play on Friday or if you really like hockey in the US, your ice time is from 10.30 to 11.30 p.m. and that's the time that you get to play ice hockey and it's just not it's not reasonable and it's it's way more expensive as well so those are the two kind of topics that i'd love to see kind of pushed forward um others other suggestions that where where you would like to see more research or different types of research um one of the things that i think is growing in terms of research um in different ways is how we uh weave um, or acknowledge and respect indigenous movement contexts in very Eurocentric programs. So it doesn't matter if we're talking Australia, New Zealand, US, we have a very, um, uh, you know, most of our programs are based on what are called traditional sports, but they're traditional to who. Mm -hmm. And so a growing sense of um, at the indigenous um, peoples practices. Um, I think there's growing literature on there, which is challenging for most people in ITE and in practice because we don't necessarily see Indigenous communities as educated. 
I think that will be an interesting place that we go. But that also means opening the doors and partnering with others again. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, ICEP did this in, in Banff, Canada. They tried to put a, a line of research about Indigenous research in health, PE. And, I mean, it didn't have a lot of submissions. There wasn't a lot of work there. And you look at the number of people in the U.S. or you know, even Canada, like doing research with indigenous populations. And it's, it's not very, it's not a research line. And I think the U.S. is so far behind in just public awareness uh, of this. Like, um, I think, you know, New Zealand, Australia, much more progressive and, you know, obviously has, has probably has work to do, but um, they're much more, much more forward thinking there. Other um, other comments on future research or research ideas? Maybe you're protecting your own idea. You don't want to uh, give your give your idea up so somebody uh, somebody steals it. Don't know. To go back to uh, what you were talking about about uh, the kind of work and meaning, uh, I just did some similar work recently, which actually draws on draws on the work that I saw Emer Enright do in the University of Limerick, which Joanne was speaking about earlier. That article and that kind of stuff, and you know what? What we're finding with the students, like like you talked about there, is that they are physically active, but they don't even realise it, and they don't ascribe that with you know the, I suppose the stereotype or that's in um, or the expectancy of what it means to be physically active in uh, in physical education. And I think that's something that people probably need to maybe consider going forward. Is how and I know that the uh, learning about meaningful physical education group or LAMP are looking a lot into this kind of stuff about, you know, how do you embed, like, reflective practices into physical education? And I suppose that kind of stuff causes a warning sign to teachers because they think if I'm spending time with students being reflective, well, then they're not physically active. Therefore, I'm not doing my job. Where I guess maybe what I've noticed in this point where I've had to move myself away from being that kind of teacher is that if you don't meet them where they are at that point and understand where they've come from, then it's very hard to try and, um, I suppose, create a sense of meaning around what it is to be physically active for them because it does look like different things to different people. And that becomes a very loose kind of uh, up-in-the-air sort of thing when you think about what a curriculum should look like. But it's certainly something that, uh, you know, Emer Enright did in her work with study, and the activists do. They study the embodiment of it for stuff. And I think that's something that we're still really missing in the field. And just to go back to one other point, uh, about the uh, gap in research to practice. I think we talk about getting the research out to practice. For me, the biggest problem is getting the teacher to the research because uh, the you know you can you can get it down to, onto the ground, but the teachers aren't willing to engage with it. I think that's a, a big a big problem. I know from my experience in Ireland, uh, you know we were when I was about to graduate, Deborah Tannehill was said, no, just go out for a few years, and see what it looks like, and come and you know if you still feel you want to do research, then do it. Uh, and then I was lucky that I was able to become a teacher researcher uh, in Ireland and then subsequently find my way out in Greensboro. And then recently out here, I was trying to do some teacher researcher work. And uh, unfortunately, the school district wouldn't allow for it. So, I mean, there's that gap. There appears to be that gap for me, I guess, maybe in school districts in the US where, you know, they're not comfortable allowing teachers to, to engage with research themselves or play around with it, which is something, of course, that you encourage a lot and promote a lot in your work here with the podcast. Yeah, and that's I, and it. I, Sorry, that's two things. No, that, and I think me. that that's a good good point there because we we don't. What it what does it do for the teacher? 
And I think that that's the question that we need to ask as well. Of like when we go into a school and we have this really good idea, and I'm not saying that this is how, how you approach it, but I think there's a lot of researchers that go in with a research line, with an agenda, they present the idea and they go, this is what I want to do. And if the teacher's like, well, what does that help me? I mean, that's, that was my dissertation. Like I went in, I had an idea, it was top down. I, I got everybody to agree to participate. And yes, they got some like accelerometers and they got some different experiences and stuff. But now looking back several years later, I don't know if that was, that was very like teacher directed or I said that I was trying to value student voice, but in the end, I don't, I don't think I really did. And I think that it's it's tough. You you have to be because you can't also run a research line like that. You know, like saying, "Hey, what can we do?" And we talked about this with Clancy yesterday. Like, what would you like for me to do in this research? That also doesn't you know run a really like tight research line, which is again privileged in and important in in research area. So, um, go ahead. Um. And from a and from a researcher perspective, Risto, I, I appreciate what you're saying because uh, I've tried to do that. You know, I've come in as the, part, the interventionist as well now, more so since I've been working with Ben. But you know, one of the important gatekeepers to get to those students is the teacher. Uh, and you know, we we can't if you're bypassing the teacher to get to the students, then you're missing, I suppose, a vital link there. The teacher is happy to stand back and allow you come in and do your thing, but. It has to mean a little bit more. There has to be the teacher as well, too, I think. But that's just a teacher researcher head and me playing around. But we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Hey, Risto, can I just jump in on what Donald said? Go ahead. Okay, buddy. Uh, look, um, I think Donald's right that it's hard to enter the schools and there's you know, little uh, sort of financial support or you know university support, as we talked about earlier, as very time-consuming and so it's also labour-intensive. But you know, uh, we can learn a great deal from being with the teachers. And so, you know, since I've got to Greensboro three years ago, you know, we've enabled, we've been able to get into schools. We are now in a, in a elementary school where we have a student funded through the CARES Act, through negotiation with that school and with uh, the CARES Act funding through the school. And Donal has been able to work at, at middle college. And also another student has been able to work in the community, you know, with um, underserved youth at a Glenwood community centre. So there are, I guess I wanted to, you know, finish on a high note because I know time's get running out, but there are high quality creative things going on out there. Uh, and I think we should recognise that as well. But I think um, we can't just sit back at our university and expect it to come to us. We have to get out there. We have to spend more time in the schools and more time in the communities. And, you know, Kirsten is exactly right. You know, having lived in New Zealand for eight and a half years and then coming back to the U.S., even Greenboro, which is one of the more diverse cities in um, in North Carolina, you know, there is a massive difference between um, what is uh, seen to be important. And, you know, when we do research in New Zealand, we, we invite the, the iwi, the tribe, to be part of it, or we invite the Ianga, the family from uh, Samoa to join in. In the US, we just go, go and do it, you know. We, do, we don't uh, ask 
for permission. We don't spend time out there finding out who are the people who are the stakeholders within that community or within that school. And all I'd like to say is if we did, if we did spend more time in schools and we did spend more time in the community, we'd figure that out better and that would help reduce our theory practice gap. That would enable us to connect with the teachers in that context. Yeah. And therefore, you know, eventually long term, we would create better policies. So, yeah. and, 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 I, said, and I agree. Uh, I thank think, you, Risto, for doing it. Yeah. Cheers. And our, um, we did a review research on teaching PE and we found that the vast majority of research in that area are questionnaires and the population who's being studied is adults and it's a lot of teacher education. So, you know, you're, you're using the easiest method because you're so strained, right? Be- due to time. So you're using the easiest method, which is sending out a questionnaire via email, getting people to send it in. And your population is mostly pre-service teachers or adults or a lot of team research um, because you're going to get published through that team research. Um, and that you're not going into schools because you don't have to get a consent form. You don't have to get access to schools. So, um, and I think that those are, those are serious issues that we need to kind of figure out because we don't want to go back to the what's going on in gym, like step into the black box kind of articles back in the 80s, 90s, where we weren't really going in and actually seeing what was happening. But uh, let me go with David and then Jamie after that. Thanks, Christo. Some really interesting points there. <clears throat> I think one of them for me is linked to that is about how can we how can we keep pushing the kind of boundaries around um, co-constructing ideas with educators and young people. So one of my questions would be around what type of approaches can we use uh, to or are being used to support young people and educators in the co-construction of ideas and research within classrooms. That's not a new idea. Um, I think Lauren Stenhouse had some thoughts on that in the 70s, and you could probably go back a bit further than that, around the idea of co-construction, action research approaches. So some questions around that for me. And then linked to that was something I'm interested in and others have been interested in around, around the world is around how do we support students and young people being more involved in the transformation of health and physical education. So how do we kind of accentuate their voice? How can we give them a more prominent role um, within that kind of policy enactment translation? And I think that's, there's some questions around for me about giving them kind of knowledge and the skills to be policy actors themselves. I know uh, Jamie talked about that earlier, but how, how can we support that? with our, our graduate programs, undergraduate programs, and then also young people in schools as well. Yeah, absolutely. Jamie? I'm really not going to answer your question, which I think is not going to surprise you. Um, but I, I think that one of the things around research and something that I've noticed, you know, kind of potentially, if I may, like moving into the middle of my career, um, I know I don't look like I could be in the middle of my career, you know, but I am. And I think that there's still sort of like this elitist um, attitude that exists like among different groups of researchers that my research is more important than yours or, 
that this methodology is like what we should be doing. And I really just feel like, you know, in the vein of kind of like, can we just all get along a little bit better that like, there needs to be just a greater appreciation for the diversity of research that's happening and um, the different data that are being generated and the different questions that are being asked and answered. And I know for myself, like teaching um, PhD students has been and PhD courses has been one of the most rewarding things because it's forced me to go back to literature that I wouldn't necessarily engage with for my own research purposes. And I end up reading things that I'm like, oh my goodness, why am I not reading more of this work and these types of things? And I think we get so stuck in our own little silos and our own little worlds with respect to that, that we would all benefit a little bit more from hearing from different voices, different perspectives, um, and so going back to the thread of kind of congratulating you on the podcast, I think that that's a really beneficial thing about something like what you're doing because you do bring on diverse voices and diverse perspectives and people doing different types of work. And I think that if we could all just sort of listen to your podcast more, um, then maybe we'd all be a little bit better off um, from that perspective. All right, you, you've earned your $10, or minimum wage, $15 an hour, $15 an hour. Uh, no, I, I, I think that's, that's right, and I, I, I would agree. Teaching, like I, I teach a research reading seminar uh, every other summer, and when I update that list of readings, that's what also pushes me to read out you know, more current literature. And I think that... You know, I, I had Anthony Marr on a couple weeks ago, and he talked about how he reads a lot outside of the area of of physical education, health education, and and even like from disability research and stuff. and And I think that those those things are something that I could do a lot better on, and that would get a lot more um, a lot more kind of information and. You know, if you look at like ARA, you go to ARA, you just drop drop into any session, and for me, there's some sessions that I jump jump uh, jump into, and I'd be super confused because I that's not something that's covered in in the physical education research, and um, I feel like certain policy, like we talked about earlier, like you go into a policy session in education policy, it's light years in front of what we're doing in physical education, especially in in the U.S. Um, so I'll um, go ahead, Colin. Iris, I just wanted to come in on, on that really as an example of something that I've been reading this weekend. It's a, it's a, it's a paper from one of my colleagues who's a sports scientist um, working in modern pentathlon. And what she and her colleagues did was they, they looked at the training load of modern pentathlon athletes. So these are young athletes, uh, I think it was 12 to 16 years of age. And modern pentathlon is a strange sport because it involves running, swimming, cycling, fencing and horse riding. And um, it was a really interesting paper to read because what they realized is that these athletes were doing up to 28 hours training a week and um, not including their physical education lessons. Uh, but what they also realized is that none of these coaches were really speaking to each other. So the swimming coach was saying we need to do more swimming and the running coach was saying we need to do more miles mm -hmm. and the fencing coach wanted more practice. Uh, and I could only imagine what the PE teacher was then asking or 
you know, we have to do two hours physical activity with the curriculum in on top of that. Um, and I think it just really struck me as a, as a, um, a paper that summarized the last two points. I think it was David's point about the need to involve learners because they only found out that the young people were doing this by giving the, the learners an app, constructing an app and letting them record it and talking to them and doing focus groups and also focus groups with the parents. Um, so the importance of listening to the young people to understand their whole week and their whole lives rather than just looking at single activity in isolation. Um, but also it struck me as that last point of, um, you know, reading outside the P and sports coaching literature, it's really a sports scientist paper. Yeah. So I'll put it in the chat, but I think it kind of gives examples for those two points is for us to maybe go beyond our boundaries a little, but also, as David said, we've got to involve the learners, and I think that's maybe something we need to do more as we move forward to understand their journey. So I thought it was a good example of the last two points, and I hope it helps people. I'll put the paper in the chat. Yeah, thanks for that. And and I think that um, it, go ahead, go ahead, Dominic. Well, it just made me remember, and I, I sound old. Um, but Larry Locke used to have this, this thing in, in JTPE saying, here's what you're missing if you don't read outside of, of this journal. And, uh, and so he was doing that, again, 30 years ago. And, and, and I think that it, it's just good to reiterate this. Um, and to the point of asking the kids, um, the greatest... Uh, so I, we published a paper recently and we had 50 copies and that was a, a paper that asked you know kids what they do in terms of physical education and physical activity and and that that's the most popular paper i mean they were they were gone in those papers were gone within days that th those free copies so um so there is an interest but the work that it took to get that data was tremendous that uh, I mean, getting the the parents to sign those those release form, uh, getting the schools to agree to let us in. So all that process is cumbersome. So and therefore, it is for older people like me and now you, Bristol, now that you're tenured, that can afford to do this kind of research because the pressure of publishing, you know, to get tenured is is still good. It's still great to get full professor, but not as great. And so, in a way, it, it, it takes kind of the, this, this next generation. Um, they have to rely on us to get some of that, that policy work and that, that research with the kids done. And think about longitudinal research. Like you would... Yes. I wouldn't say... I, I think you'd be misguided if you started a longitudinal study as a first or second year... Uh, assistant professor with a four or five year longitudinal study. I mean, it would be great to start early, but you're not going to publish those papers. And I think that those are, that's good research to do a longitudinal study, but you can't really pick it up until you get past certain hurdles in the tenure and promotion process. So I think, I, I think you bring up a really good point. Um, at, at this point, I mean, I, I think Clancy and I could hang out for another two hours, but uh, uh, let me let me just kind of open up the the questions for the last couple questions. Um, I I especially want to highlight the 
the last one, what good things do you see happening in our field? And this is a, a nod to um, conversations I've had with David and Joanne about appreciative inquiry, which is a, a project that I still really want to do because I feel like looking at the good in the field and understanding that, yes, there are things for us to critique and there's plenty of research that critiques things, but going in with a lens of looking at something positive, um, I feel like that's something that we should at least bring into this, um, to this conversation. And, and the other questions of, you know, if you want to chime in about the future, like what do you envision the future of health and physical education and being, and maybe we can kind of uh, not immediately close out, but start closing out on on those questions. So um, I'll I'll put my two out here about what good I see in the field is that there's a lot of very passionate uh, grad students, and and I know um, Donal, uh, you know, is is one of those. Uh, I think Alba Rodriguez, who's our grad student, you can see that they're like they're very engaged. They're starting new things. They're they're collaborating with each other, and I just I feel like um, seeing that is really nice. Um, you know, the ARA conference is coming up here in April, and uh, there was a huge presence of doctoral students. And I know Ben, you had a you had a really good run this year, and your and uh, your doctoral students who were submitting to ARA Sig ninety three. So, props to UNCG, man! Like you, you all are. Uh, doing really well and really good stuff coming out of that, coming out of that group. So, um, and a lot of your former students are publishing in that in that conference as well. So, I love seeing that passion. Um, you know, speaking back to ARA, the the highest ranked paper in the last, let's say, out of the last ten years, the highest ranked paper that comes out just by numbers. I'd say at least 70% of the time is a, is a graduate student. And so out of everybody who's putting that in, it's always interesting. And it's, uh, you know, Anchi Chen, uh, who, who is at a UNCG now in a postdoc position, you know, she, she's won the, you know, she won the award last year for best doc student. And it's basically whoever scores the highest out of all of the doctoral students but she scored highest out of everybody. And I think that those are really, really cool things to see um, when there's really great grad students coming up. And the other um, thing that I really like seeing is this focus on student voice and student choice and working with students. And I want to kind of give, uh, highlight Carla Laguetti's work here. I, I think she's putting out a tremendous volume of stuff. Like I feel like every time I go on Twitter, Carla's got a new paper out. Um, but she's, she's doing great work and I, and I like that, um, that she's working with, with different, uh, sports organizations and different youth groups. So, um, others, other things that you, you see that are, that are great in health and physical education. Don't all go ahead. Yeah, no, uh, one of the projects I did was, uh, I started looking at the how democracy was written about in physical education over the last 100 years. I presented that at shape last April. I, I, I call it a democratic pursuit of meterism in physical education, which is a bit lofty, and I don't think a teacher would read it, but all I'll say is that we've never done a better job of some of the things we're doing in physical education right now, uh, and to keep the glass half full, and you know, especially in relation to the topic I was writing about, which was democracy and social justice, which is stuff that I'm interested in, and 
I really only scraped the, the, the surface compared to a lot of people you just mentioned there. But uh, when I was listing out people like Hemphill, Blackshear, Cult, uh, I, I started landy, I started running out of breath. So uh, the people are out there, they're all over the world and they are doing great work, you're right. Uh, and it's just a reminder that, you know, you know, to do your best, even if the best isn't necessarily, you can realise where that is or what that's going to look like by the end that you get there, but you keep doing that. And I think in the field, we're doing a really exceptional job of that, especially in the last 10 years. And you look at the type of literature, especially in higher education anyway, that does need to trickle down. But definitely, it's very hard to go a week without seeing an article about some of the great topics that we talk about and without seeing a podcast that you are sharing this work as well too. It's very hard to go without something cropping up recently. So yeah, glass half full, definitely. Yeah, thanks for that. And and Donal, I, I'd recommend uh, going into the chat there and chatting with uh, Nate, get get his email address, Nate Babcock on there. I know I, I his camera's off, but I saw a light bulb go up above his head when you said democracy and physical education and, and uh he talked uh, in the chat about meaningful physical education and how, how great it is seeing that um, coming up and being, I mean, there's, there's a whole session on social emotional learning and a lot of that stuff has the meaningful physical education coming up in ARA as well. So, um, and Nate will be in San Diego. So just a quick train ride for you. Um, David, what, what good do you see? Well, aside from your podcast, Risto, which is that, um, what, really good. How um, could I transfer money over to your account for the $15 bonus and the free plug? We'll sort something out. We'll sort something out. No, seriously, I think um, podcast is great. I think my students really, really engage with it. Um, and the teacher educators in Wales have really found it useful as a way of accessing a whole range of ideas and perspectives and really showing them that actually as a, as a community there is diversity there. I think there's a long way to go with diversity of ideas, but I think things like this really help that process. So uh, aside from your podcast, I just get a sense over the last few years that there's a real sense of our community being willing to try and enhance itself, to have more active dialogue across different spaces. I think our, you know, aside from being unable to travel, the use of technology has allowed us to talk more and more frequently and I think that's a, that's a really good thing to see and I think that's really shown how many different ideas and approaches are being taken but ultimately trying to do the same sort of thing which is to enhance young people's experiences of physical education and physical activity. So I, I think that's really good and I think that's a really positive thing for the future. And also then the, the other good thing um, as kind of Donald's talking about there is the some of the quality of the ideas and the work that's being published in the journals. I think you know my my reading list is longer than my ability to read them at the moment, which is always a real good thing to have um, going on. But I, I think some of the the ideas and the quality of the writing is is really really exceptional in places. Yeah, and and I do agree with you that that international like being able to with technology work across different time zones and um i will give a free plug out to worldtimebuddy.com great great website you just type in all right cardiff uh let's go with uh, melbourne let's go with virginia and then you could just like 
figure out exactly what that time zone is and and it actually took in daylight savings time for this so i'm happy that it worked because you could go through and actually put the specific date which is the date we're recording uh but uh yeah and and that's the thing like through technology that's how i met david like that's how i met you you came on the podcast we talked now you know we're working on a paper together and working across a bunch of different time zones and i think that that's that's so um it's so cool to be able to do that uh clancy uh, i'm glad that uh nate brought up the meaningful pe framework i think that's an excellent point and then uh donnell's mention of about de democratic perspectives uh when it comes to the future of physical education i think that's critical i think david speaks as well to what we've learned even from the pandemic i think even though we have the pandemic and a lot of the challenges from the pandemic and, and, but we have you know obviously mixed feelings but at the same time we've learned the value of, of quality health and pe and the well-rounded education of each child moving forward and i think that's a lesson that many school districts have learned as a result of that so um i, I think that's promising and i hope uh, we can continue to, to fight the uh the challenge ahead when it comes to making sure that physical education and health has its rightful place in the k-12 through sphere um you know other promising things are uh, again the, the continued advocacy for our profession by way of some of the outstanding professionals here today as well you know uh I know Steve Harvey and Colum, you know, have done a lot of research that segues uh, teaching to coaching and how there are a lot of universal principles that apply. And I think by doing that, Colum is, you know, interested in that, in that notion of care and how care is so uh, important in any profession that we undertake. But also, you know, Steve's hard work when it comes to uh, relaying and, and disseminating the pedagogical principles that uh, are successful with coaching um, uh, that are that come and originate from teaching and physical education. I think that only strengthens the profession moving forward to see its value when it comes to outside constituents. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that there is a, a big transition there that those those coaching and teaching is overlapping. I know Shane Pill and a bunch of others are. Uh, they just published a book on the spectrum of coaching styles, which is super interesting. Yeah. And, and they said that uh, they've Shane gotten... and, uh, I, 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 How can we forget Shane, Richard Light, uh, all of those. They're, yeah. they're doing wonderful work and, and relaying, again, that nexus between coaching and teaching. That's the critical piece. And I think it only strengthens the value of, uh, uh, of our profession by doing so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any uh, final thoughts, burning questions for the, for the field from the from the people on here. And that's how you end a online lecture right there in class. Hearing none, the class is over. Um, I really appreciate everybody uh, that came on. Um, and again, if you're, if you're listening, I uh, really appreciate all the, all the listenership here as well. Um, it has been a really fun ride over the last four years and um, doing weekly episodes for four four years and only missing like two or three weeks, I I feel like that was kind of an accomplishment that I did not it sign is. up it for. Is. I I didn't think it was going to go like this, but uh, it's been fun and I and I love talking about different topics. I know that you know the article club uh, that we run once a month. We're going to start moving towards more 
not every week, but more towards out of our area to kind of push our push our reading and thinking. And so if those are things that you're interested in or you want to start an article club to read certain things or if you have a, a book idea that you want to kind of read a book together and get on and kind of talk about it, I'm, I'm definitely interested in that. I think this is a, a good platform for creative and different thinking stuff. So there's it doesn't have to be this way. And I know that you know, a full acknowledgement of how this started. I, I was trying to get these podcasts to be 20 to 25 minute long podcasts so they could be quick, easy, like listening before students go to class. But it's definitely morphed into this like 45 minute to an hour conversation with one scholar or two scholars at a time. And, and to be honest, I don't hate that. I, I enjoy it. I think it's, it's a good conversation. We get to really unpack the paper um, but you know, if there's ways that you all that are listening that think that this could improve, like I'm super open to to feedback on how to how to make this more um, you know more approachable for for people listening and helpful. So trying to do some short ones and some some longer ones, and obviously you're probably if you're still listening, it's like an hour and a half in. You're like, these are not 20, 25 minute podcasts, but. Uh, we had a great time, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education, so I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.